tonight we turn our attention to Roman Catholicism. So hopefully you've had enough time. You found 2 Peter chapter 1. You stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. We're going to read 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 16 to the end of the chapter. This is God's word to us. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we turn our attention now to your word, looking to it as the definitive answer for all that we need to be who you expect us to be. For, Father, it's your word that sets the standard for the affairs and actions of man. So we ask tonight that you would help us as we consider another major world religion, that we would have hearts that are soft towards your word, not just to be able to identify another group that we disagree with, for that's not the aim, but to make sure that when we claim to follow you, that we do it legitimately according to your word. We think of our friends around the city tonight, Father, many of whom will be preaching and teaching your word. We think of our friends at Graceway and the college ministry there under the direction of Zach Peel and pray that you would enlarge their ministry. You would see them grow. Then, Father, we also think of our friends at Spring Hill Baptist tonight. We think of Jared Proctor and the rest of the staff there. We ask that you would, again, allow these churches that their gospel witness might increase because we're not the only people in the city who have the word of God and we're not the only people who proclaim the gospel. So we ask that you would bring revival to our city. We ask that you would bring revival to our church and we ask that you would bring revival to each of us individually. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. So one of the hardest parts about teaching on competing religious groups is the way that we define religious groups. For instance, consider this way of defining groups. Right now, it is estimated in the world that there are 2.4 billion Christians. And if you were to go and research who makes up that 2.4 billion people inside of the Christian community, you would find out this information. You would find out that inside of that 2.4 billion people, 1.3 billion of those claim Catholicism and a form of Catholicism as their Christianity. Then you would find that there are 920 million who claim a form of Protestantism as their Christian belief system. Then you would find 270 million people 
who claim the Eastern Orthodox Church, which split from uh, the West uh, as that particular form of Christian religion. And then you would find that there are 80 million who identify as some form of Oriental Orthodox. And then, surprisingly enough, and really misleading, inside of what is reported to the world at large, 35 million people are called what is referred to as non-Trinitarian restoration groups. And this would include, and is not limited to, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. If you are a secular person trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ, and you go with the secular data at hand, you're more confused at the end than you were at the beginning. And even more so confused as to why 1.3 billion of those 2.4 billion people all claim to be Catholic. And what's even more confusing is as you break down Protestants, inside of the Protestant church is where uh, you would find people like the Southern Baptist Convention. And oddly enough, in that same group of Protestants is where you would find people who are adherents of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship who don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, who deny basic doctrinal concerns. Inside of that Protestant group, you would find Lutherans, Missouri Synod, who proclaim and teach the gospel. And then you would find the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America that basically has denied the entirety of scriptural teaching. So it really becomes confusing to talk about what makes up a true Christian. And for the sake of what we're going to do, because in all honesty, we could spend another semester just breaking down this particular group and saying, what does it look like to be a so-called Christian in the modern world? We, we won't do that tonight. We're going to keep our subject matter at hand and talk about what does it mean to be Catholic. Talk about Roman Catholicism. It's, a, it's, remor it's important to remember tonight that when we talk about the Roman Catholic Church, Catholics claim a direct lineage to Christ. And they claim that the first pope is the Apostle Peter. And then from there... We have the first non-apostolic pope, St. Linus, who around sometime in the year A.D. 64 to A.D. 68 became the first non-apostolic pope. And there have been 266 popes, with the current pope being Pope Francis, who has been the pope since March of 2013. So it becomes confusing. Here's another group of people who say they have a direct line to Christ. Now, we're not going to spend our time tonight considering the claims that Peter is the first pope. We can do that another time or maybe in a Q&A session at a later date. But for the sake of what we're going to try and do tonight, I want to dispel some myths and at the same time teach as much as I possibly can you uh, what Roman Catholics believe. And so we start tonight with the issue of Scripture. And that's why we started in Second Peter, specifically verse 20 and 21. Let's read it again. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I love about teaching, and I've had the opportunity to do this a few times, talk about the difference between 
evangelicals and Roman Catholics or to, to help even more Protestants versus Catholics. Uh, one of the things that I, I love about this is the opportunity to consider what is it that makes us different? Because we live in a culture and a society that tries to make everybody the same. Everybody is okay. Everybody is kind of believes the same thing. In fact, in 2000, or not 2004, but you may have heard of a group called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And here was the baseline idea behind ECT. Evangelicals and Catholics Together was this idea that evangelicals and Catholics could unite under some common causes, such as, but not limited to, the sanctity of human life, human and civil rights, primarily. That's what ECT was designed to do. But when you get a group of people who claim to be spiritual, claim to be Christians together, more often than not, you're going to get a doctrinal statement that comes with it. And what ended up happening is Protestants ended up not being Protestant, and Catholics ended up trying to regain ground. So I want to be careful tonight to speak clearly to you about the differences between the Roman Catholic Church and evangelicals. So we start with the issue of Scripture. Now, what ends up happening, because of uh, a couple different things, and we'll talk about that, is that Catholics oftentimes, from a Protestant viewpoint or an evangelical viewpoint, there you'll hear people inside of, maybe even you've heard them inside of this church or another church that you've attended in the past, say that Catholics have a very low view of Scripture. If you study theology, if you study church history, you actually find out the exact opposite of this. Uh, Catholics have a very high view of Scripture. They just have a different way of defining what is Scripture and how to interpret that Scripture, which is significant and important. And the difference between the Roman Catholic understanding of Scripture and evangelicals boils down really to two things. Number one, we'll start with the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is what makes up a group of books that is considered to have been written during the intertestamental period. In other words, if you were to take your Bible right now, don't do this because it will be distracting to you, but later on, take your Bible and flip over to where the New Testament begins and the Old Testament ends. So right between Malachi and, and Matthew chapter 1. And that is where the Apocrypha sits. Those 400 years of silence that takes place from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew make up the apocryphal books. That's where they are inserted into the Bible. Catholics believe that the Apocrypha is inspired and infallible. Whereas Protestants, namely evangelicals, believe that the Apocrypha can be helpful. It's good reading material. It's insightful during to understand the period between Malachi and Matthew. Is ultimately not authoritative. It's not inspired by God and, and not infallible. It, it contains error and it's not given to us. By God. Now, Catholics believe that those books should be included and insert them in their Bibles. That's why if you ever hold a Catholic Bible, you find one and two Maccabees, and you're confused as to why those books are there. Those are apocryphal books. Now, beyond the Apocrypha, and this is what ends up being more troubling, is this idea of tradition. Think of Fiddler on the Roof. 
I think of that song. Inside of the Roman Catholic Church, tradition plus scripture is the guiding force in the life of a Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church goes as far as to say that because they have the scriptures and tradition, any rival interpretation is wrong. So any Protestant interpretation of scripture that disagrees with the stated positions of the Roman Catholic Church is to be anathema. In other words, it's scripture plus what the church has to say. Now we'll go back to the verses that we read and we'll make comments as to why we disagree. Verse 20 of 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. I, I don't want to make light of the Roman Catholic Church, but I'm going to I'm taking you tonight to two different texts where the supposed first papal authority, the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church, directly contradicts what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Peter here argues that there is no such thing as a private interpretation or a better interpretation that comes from any one particular person. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to dive deep, right? We want to understand things. So tonight, because we're dealing with Roman Catholicism and because so much of how we understand Scripture is rooted in the Reformation era, the 16th century, you're going to get a little Latin tonight. And so you're going to be able to take that with you to Christmas dinner. If somebody starts ragging on you about your grades, be like, hey, look, like, and you can drop some of these phrases. And if they don't know, you can be like, look, I, I'm going to get bad grades, but you don't even know what you're talking about about Jesus. So just give them that. I'm just giving you that free pass. I know some of you are going to get ragged on for a lack of a boyfriend, lack of a girlfriend, lack of getting married, lack of good grades. I, I just would like to throw back in those people's faces your lack of knowing any Latin. So far more educated than that. Protestants throughout the period of the Reformation reclaimed the seminal doctrine of sola scriptura. This doctrine argues that the scriptures alone are sufficient to guide the believer. We don't need no stinking help. That's kind of what the reformers are saying. In this sense, we don't need a, a priest, a, a papal authority, a pope to tell us how to understand the scriptures. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer and helps illuminate his mind as he reads the Bible. Now keep in mind the time period of the Reformation. The Bible is not written in the common man's language. And it's not readily available. Remember, we're talking pre-Tyndale, pre-printing press, pre-iPhone. You think about the ease and accessibility of getting a Bible today. If you have a smartphone with a small amount of data, you can download the Bible and carry it around with you wherever you go. And pull it up at will. In the 16th century, the Bible was not written in the common language, and it was chained to a pulpit inside of the Roman Catholic Church. And the only one who could read it and interpret it was the priest who had 
studied and understood the scriptures. So here come the reformers, the band of merry men, if you will. Men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Fyodor Beza. And these homeboys say, this is not how God intended his word to be read. And praise God for theologians like Augustine who opened the doorway for Luther to even be able to begin to reclaim this. And understand this, too, while we're at it. We want to clarify history. We want to make sure that you understand this. Because sometimes those of us who are theologians tend to get a little bit excited about this and kind of get carried away. And Luther's like this whole big guy who's nailing these 95 theses to the church door of Wittenberg. And he's sparking this reformation. Understand this. The goal of the reformation in the life of the church was to correct the Roman Catholic Church, not to leave it. The, the goal of the reformers initially was to say, you've erred, let's fix these problems, let's get away from tradition, let's get away from the sacraments, let's get away from saying that priests can absolve people of their sins, which we'll talk about next, and, and let's go back to the Bible. Well, Rome wanted nothing to do with that, and thus the Protestant Reformation flies and sparks and just engulfs the world. But understand this. Nothing has changed in Rome. Much like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. The Roman Catholic Church still argues to this day that any rival interpretation of the scriptures that is not in line with the Roman Catholic Church is to be anathema which again is the exact opposite of what the, scripture, the scriptures teach. If you were to go to the book of Galatians or to the book of Revelation, you would read in two different places where the biblical authors say that any person who adds to or takes away from this word is to be accursed. So tonight, what I want to do is just ask you this simple question. How much are you actually regularly relying on God's word for how you live? Because here's what happens. Like, yeah, Protestants, we're, we're better. Taking it to the streets. Like, we're better than them. But what's interesting is how much Christians claim that they believe the Bible and it is their guiding force, yet more often than not are guided more by tradition than they are by God's word. Do you consistently... Spend time reading God's word on a daily basis. Is this a regular habit of your life? You can't claim sola scriptura, this idea of scripture alone, while simultaneously living like you don't even know what's in God's word. Number two, and this is the big one. Scripture's big, but this is even bigger. Flip over to Romans chapter 4. Go to Paul's magnificent letter. We talk about the issue of justification. How can man be made right with God? On this, the divide is wide between Protestants and Catholics. 
Let's read the first four verses together. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as great, but as debts. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that justification, actually, this, this process of being made right with God, takes place after we're transformed into his image. The idea of justification comes after sanctification. In order to be declared right or just, the believer, according to the Roman Catholic Church, must be sanctified to the point where they can display the righteousness that is pleasing to God. Furthermore, as if that wasn't bad enough, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that justification, this idea of being made right with God, takes place through the sacraments. They believe that you must be baptized in order to be justified. Rome goes on to say, and this is a great phrase to understand, Rome goes on to say that the sacraments function ex opere operato. You go, what is he talking about? Guy's really jazzed up about the Latin tonight. Ex opere operato means that you are saved through the working of work. In other words, that by your works you will be saved. This is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Furthermore, okay, so we're just building a case to show how we're different. So you're sanctified into some form of being made right with God by your works. But you can also lose your justification. This idea of being made right with God, you can lose that through something referred to as a mortal sin. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has been very careful not to ever come out with a specific catalog of what specifically makes up mortal sins. But they have identified a few. And one that is very well known is the idea that those who are actual, true, practicing Catholics that are married will tell you they cannot get divorced because to be divorced is a mortal sin and they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. This idea of you can commit a sin so bad that you will lose your justification. Again, we go to the 16th century and, and, and Martin Luther is transformed through the reading and understanding of Romans. Romans, in the original language, blows Luther's mind. This is a, he's reading it going, this is exactly contrary to what I've been taught. Imagine going to school for years, only to find out that everything that you've been taught was a lie. Some of you are like, I wonder if that's what's happening to me right now. Luther discovers this text here, Romans chapter 4. Paul says this, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
And then he makes this clarifying statement. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. We know from reading in other places of scripture that the Apostle Paul will tell us that our righteousness is as, actually is as filthy rags apart from the salvific work of Christ. So what's discovered in here is not that you are saved ex operato operate through the working of work. No. The reformers write the absolute opposite. They go back and recover the principle that is underlying this particular text. That a Christian is saved according to this principle. Sola fide. Faith alone. That you are saved by faith alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. This is the grand rediscovery of the Protestant Reformation. And out of this particular saving identity comes this understanding. Rome teaches this formula for what is necessary for salvation. Faith plus works equals salvation. So if you were, if I had a whiteboard up here, I would tell you this is what you need to know as one of the key differences between the most important difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Faith plus works equals salvation. You could put RCC and then underline that. That would be the formula. The Protestants, though, come to this particular text and other texts through the remainder of Scripture, and they understand this, that justification, salvation, the the formulaic equation, if we were going to put it this way, is that faith equals justification plus works. Faith equals justification plus works. This idea that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are simultaneously justified and in the process of being sanctified. This idea that you're positionally right with God, but you still have work to do because the call is to be holy as I am holy. And a great, you know, you got a really great phrase, right? This idea of imputation, that Christ puts his, places his righteousness on us. That So Christ no longer looks God no longer looks at me through the lens of who I am, but looks at me through the lens of who Christ is. The Protestants took it even another step forward, this idea of double imputation. Just, just, just go home with this. You're like, what have you learned this semester? Well, I've learned a whole bunch of stuff that won't matter for eternity. But have you ever considered the principle of double imputation? I guarantee you no one at the table is going to be like, yes, we've been, we've been discussing that lately in our life pod at our church we've just been really encouraged by that double imputation what is that it's like double amputation no it's not like no no double imputation is this idea that your sins are imputed on christ's account on the cross and through his death burial and resurrection his righteousness is placed on your account you trade accounts. It's what some of you wish you could do with your school debt. 
Yo, Bill Gates, how about a little double imputation? You take on my debt, I take on your wealth. I thought that would for sure get a response, but apparently not. Because you haven't looked yet. Like, oh man, that's a lot of imputation that is necessary. So what comes out of the reformers is this ideal, this principle. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously righteous and sinful. This idea that Christ has redeemed us and justified us. And we don't have to worry about being declared righteous by some papal authority. Now keep in mind, this is where it gets really kind of wonky because Protestants are like, yeah, we don't need no stinking priest. So I grew up in a fairly Catholic part of the country. A lot of Catholic friends. They're always weirded out that I never confessed sin to a priest. And I was always weirded out that they went into a box and talked to somebody. Like, what's going on in there? Understand this. Hebrews chapter 4 makes it imperative that you understand that you do need a priest. But you don't need a human priest. You need a priest that's far better than any human priest. You need a priest that can actually absolve you of sins. And the only one who's capable of doing that is Jesus. It, it's wonderful. This is a wonderful witnessing tool to use when talking to someone who is a Catholic. I can tell you the multiple amounts of times where I've been sitting with someone, having a conversation. And someone will say, what's the difference between you, Catholic, and he, Protestant? And the Catholic will say, well, he believes that he doesn't need a priest, and I believe that I do need a priest. And I'm always like, no, I believe that I need a priest. Mine's just better than yours. Mine's superior to yours. Mine's greater than yours. And I don't mean that because we're best friends or best buds or because I play golf with them at the country club. My priest doesn't sit in a box. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he's constantly making intercession for me. That's my priest. That's your priest tonight if you've trusted in Christ. But I would ask you, what do you believe about how someone is saved and have you truly trusted christ like i'm i'm a firm believer in this fact that just because you're sitting in here and you've regularly attended our college ministry does not guarantee that you are born again believer have you had christ's righteousness put on your account if you haven't you don't have to wait but lastly, we'll turn to Acts chapter 4 and consider the church together. Acts chapter 4. This will be the second time where I cite Peter, the supposed first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Because I think this passage is important. I want to take people who argue for Peter as the first pope here. And I want to read them this passage. First, we'll read verses, uh, Acts chapter 4, sorry. Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 8 through 12 together. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all that, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. For there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says the only way you can be saved is by Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church states that in their actual catechism, if you were to go and get the actual catechism of the Roman Catholic Church 1995, that's the latest updated edition, it would tell you this, that outside of the church there is no salvation. I'm not misrepresenting. I'm not saying this is what Catholic theologians teach or this is what they've written about. I'm saying in the catechism, where you train people what to believe, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that outside of being a part of that church, there is no salvation. To be a part of, to, to not be a part of a Roman Catholic Church is to forego salvation. Because to not be a member of the Roman Catholic Church means also you're not going to partake of the sacraments. It means you're not going to take part in communion. It means you're not going to take part in a Roman Catholic baptism. I'll close with this. My best friend growing up, you know, is, uh, some of you know, uh, his name is Scott. Uh, we played golf in high school together. He's my best friend all through high school. And I spent seven years sharing the gospel with Scott. Now, Scott's family uh, was Roman Catholic. Scott was Roman Catholic, and I don't mean the Roman Catholic by name only. Every Lord's Day, they spent his family his grandparents on his mom and dad's side, both sides of the family, and all of his aunts, uncles, and cousins all attended the same Catholic church in Bettendorf, which is the town over from where I grew up. Every Lord's Day, he would go and take communion. Now, remember, inside of the Roman Catholic Church, the sacraments, thinking baptism, uh, think of penance, confessing in, in that box to the priest, think of uh, taking Communion, all of those are believed to be saving, salvific. This is why you must be a part of the church in order to be saved. When Scott came to know Christ, he went back to that Roman Catholic church for a family gathering. He had begun attending a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, for he knew that if he attended a Baptist church, it would surely give his mother a heart attack. And I'm not kidding you, I think it would have. But Scott told me that the first time he went back to that Roman Catholic church and he got ready to take communion, and if you ever go to take communion at um, the Roman Catholic church or you're in a mass for a friend that's getting married that is Roman Catholic, I would advise you to do the same. Because to stay seated is in a Roman Catholic church during the taking of the table is far more disruptive than it is to actually get up and stand in line. So as he marched forward he knew what he must do he was not going to take communion because he understood that that was no longer what saved him his faith in jesus christ alone is what had saved him and i, I praise god for that 
And as he got closer to the front, he knew what he had to do. And as any Catholic who's converted to Christianity and any of us Protestants who've ever been to a Catholic service or wedding or serve the Mass or take communion knows, he approached that altar and he crossed his arms and he made an X over his chest. And to a pro- Protestant means we're just not taking it. That's how we typically explain it to the Roman or to our Protestant friends. Just cross your arms, you're not taking the table. Scott understood, though, that this was way bigger of a deal because what stood in front of him was the priest who had confirmed him, who had baptized him, who had catechized him. And so he stood in front of that priest and he crossed his arms and he didn't take the table. And Scott, recounting the story, said the color drained from that priest's face because he understood what Scott was saying. Here is a former member of our church who is rejecting all that he has been taught. And now, according to Roman Catholic teaching, stands condemned to spend eternity in hell. In fact, what would be suggested to him in that moment would be that he needed to go and confess. And then he needed to stay and attend the next mass and take communion. For if he were to leave that Roman Catholic church, get into an accident and die, he would spend eternity in hell. Friends, understand this. We don't believe the same thing. We're not even close. We believe that there is salvation through one name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And that you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Brothers, sisters, like this burdens me because so many of my friends that are still living at home where I grew up, continue to participate in this. And down here in the Bible Belt, where Baptists and Assemblies of God continue to hand fight over what does it mean to speak in tongues, every Lord's Day, we drive just up the road from our house is a Roman Catholic church that piles in Saturday night at 5, two times on Sunday morning. And as I drive by on Saturday night, sometimes going home, all I can think of is there are a group of people who legitimately believe that they are saving themselves. But I want to end with this. Some of you potentially are guilty of the same thing. You would never say verbally that that attending this church, going to this college ministry saves you. But by your actions, that's what you believe. Because the only time that you care about the things of Christ is when you're sitting here. And you legitimately think that if you just continue to attend and go through the motions that God will somehow be appeased by that. Make no mistake, God is not appeased, God is not pleased, and God does not look at your church attendance and think more highly of you as a result of it. There is only one name under heaven and earth whereby man can be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. By putting our faith and trust in him and him alone. May we all be committed to proclaiming that. Not just here, not just now. But outside of here for all eternity. Let's pray together.